Good afternoon, and welcome to Citizen K, a weekly current affairs program featuring in-depth interviews and perspectives. I'm Kareem Mosna. This week on the show, with the provincial election coming up on Thursday, I asked each of the local candidates a question. Which one key issue affecting Kingston and the islands would they like to tackle right away? Their answers coming up. First, the city of Kingston is looking to refresh its strategy when it comes to addressing labor shortages, recruitment, and retainment of workers. We'll dive deeper into this in a moment. But first, we'll hear from each of the candidates from the all-candidates debate at St. Lawrence College, talking about what they would do to help businesses address the skills gap to hire and grow their business. First, we'll hear from Liberal Ted Shu. Well, one of the things that the Ontario Liberal Platform does is recognizes that the economy has changed and there are a lot of workers in what we call the gig economy. So we want to provide a portable uh, package of benefits uh, that one might get in a, in a permanent job. Uh, this would be something that the government would pay for and then eventually we would uh, provide incentives for small businesses to contribute to this package of benefits. Uh, this would increase the likelihood that somebody would, would seek work because of the benefits package. We also want to do things like provide before and after school daycare, which will free up, uh, increase the productivity of parents because they'll be freed up to, to work on jobs where they can't always be there to pick up their kids or drop off their kids. Um, and as I mentioned before, subtle things like changing uh, ODSP so that there's an incentive uh, for, for people on ODSP to do more work. So they don't, they don't say, well, I don't want to earn more than $200 a month because it gets clawed back. We're going to change that. NDP, Mary Rita Holland. The affordability challenge, and, and certainly as it relates to, to housing, is something that I've heard from many local businesses as a, as a huge problem in trying to recruit talent. Uh, that We have a plan to address that, but it won't happen right away. So other initiatives in our platform that do uh, impact people and ensure that they have the quality of life and supports that they need uh, include a $20 minimum wage, although that would be gradually phased in with supports for local businesses to, to help them adjust to that, uh, as well as benefits in the form of expanding OHIP to cover mental health, dental health, and prescription drugs. This is a government-initiated, paid-for program. Uh, we know that not all businesses can afford to provide those services as part of their uh, package to employees, and we also believe that that's the role of government. And we, we believe that the role of government is to protect workers by also providing 10 paid sick days. I don't think anyone can deny the fact that that's something that was severely lacking during the pandemic. Conservative Gary Bennett. I think I would start by investing and contributing and donating what I could to St. Lawrence College. I think this is the sort of institution that really in many ways represents the solution to our labor shortages in Ontario. I, I talk to business people every day and they tell me, the number one thing they tell me is I can't get trained, qualified people to work in my business. You know, and that's why I know this college is going to play such an important role in the future of not only this community, but all of Ontario. And the community colleges, I think in many respects, a university education I think is good for developing critical skills, uh, but it's our colleges that really give us the practical training that, that allow us to transition almost immediately into the job world. Uh, one job opportunity, I talked to the CEO of Utilities Kingston the other day, and he said, we really don't have a, a diploma or certificate program to train people in, in wastewater management. And the reason that's important, he says, he says when people look at uh, gas utilities and electrical utilities and water utilities, they assume electricity 
or gas is more dangerous. The reality is water is a more dangerous commodity to manage, and what an opportunity for St. Lawrence College. And lastly, from Green candidate Zachary Tyfair. You know, we really have a job shortage on, late, on uh, expertise people going into because, well, you have to work two to three jobs. You, how are you expecting students to get ahead? Most of my coworkers work three jobs. You're, the recommended hours to work is 20, 15 to 20 hours. Most of them are working 30. You can't get ahead in this world. That's the problem. You, you have students getting burnt out. You're getting students that can't complete their courses because they're paying so much for rent that they have to pick up a second, third job and work midnights. They can't do their homework. That's the problem. So what is the Green Party going to do? We're going to make tuition be put into your gross income. So then you will get ahead. So then you're not paying thou millions, like thousands and thousands of dollars to get ahead. Over the four years, we're going to give 60,000 people the skills and experience to work green jobs by by one year of tuition free and one year of paid per apprenticeship. The affordable housing crisis has to be addressed in order for students to actually get back to school. Kingston's workforce development and immigration strategy was first implemented in 2017. Dejana Turkovic is a workforce development analyst with the city of Kingston. She joined me to talk about new challenges that employers and job seekers are facing and how the community can weigh in to help find solutions not only in this area, but, uh, you know, around Canada uh, and even into the States, labor shortages. Are we seeing that here? Yes, we are. Um, and that's not a new development. So when we initially worked on the workforce immigration strategy, you know, the work kind of started in 2015 and went over a period of a year and a half and it went live in 2017. And so we've been implementing it since. We knew labor shortages were coming. We were already seeing some in specific sectors. Um, and that is due to the baby boomer generation retiring. What we're seeing now with COVID is that more people have retired and with the opening of more remote opportunities, people have, you know, who worked in more precarious sectors have moved from the jobs they potentially had in hospitality to working from home as potentially someone on a phone line, you know, providing customer service. So we knew labor shortages were coming. We just didn't quite see them coming so soon. Um, and a lot of the people who have left certain sectors have simply moved on to jobs in other sectors. So I think some sectors are seeing much more of a pinch than others. So recruitment is important, um, but also retainment. Uh, can you talk a bit about some of the current strategies and maybe what's being looked at uh, to recruit and to retain workers? So with the, with the citywide strategy, what we're basically looking at is common themes. So in, in sort of 2017, we sat down and we talked to employers, uh, both public and private, small employers, large employers, uh, people working in Kingston, people who are considering moving here or had moved here within the last few years and came up with some sort of general themes. So one of them was uh, inclusion, equity, diversity and inclusion. It was not a big topic in Kingston at the time. It has become... Um, much broader now. So we implemented a workplace inclusion charter that is currently still still ongoing. Uh, we've been able to fund it almost exclusively through grants and it's being implemented by our partners at uh, Keys Employment Services. And so that supports employers and their employees as they, sort, as they integrate EDI into their workplace. And that has been tremendously su successful, especially with, um, with the reliance on immigration for labor market growth. Uh, we as a society are not having enough children to have sort of a natural population growth. So we need immigration in order to continue to grow. 
And that was the case prior to the pandemic and will be even more so now. Um, the other piece that came out is that Kingston has a large number of um, public sector jobs and private sector jobs that attract from outside of Kingston because there's such specific roles. Um, healthcare comes to mind, Queen's University professors, um, you know, Invista recruits outside the community for their you know, specialized engineers, uh, Canada Royal Milk for its specialized professionals that do whatever it needs to be done in food processing. So one of the needs that came through that was support for spouses. So a lot of times, and this was something that we heard quite a bit, someone would take a job in Kingston, they would come with their spouse and their family, the spouse would struggle to integrate, and then the family would pack up and leave. They would either go back to where they originally came from, or they would go somewhere else where the spouse has better employment opportunities. So we implemented a program called the Dual Career Support Program that's been now running for about four years. And that's what it does. You know, it sits down with spouses um, long before they move here. So a lot of times these moving is a process. So they will sit down with the spouses when they're still on their original location and start working with them on integrating them into the community, introducing them to the local labor market, um, doing introductions with HR managers, um, really helping them understand what their opportunities are. And I think with COVID, having already sort of established a virtual program for this, it was a lot easier because people were still taking jobs and people were still moving, but they couldn't, a lot of it had to be done online prior to them actually landing here. So those are sort of the two programs that we implemented that were really successful. Um, another thing that was implemented was an employment grant for the city of Kingston. So there's lots of really cool stuff going on in Kingston. And a lot of people outside of Kingston and sometimes even in Kingston don't really know about it. So what we tried to do was sort of get the messaging together and make someone looking at Kingston um, make their decision easier by providing them with information and things like neighborhoods and, you know, where do you find a walk-in clinic and um, what schools are available for your children and where you might, where might you find a summer camp? Um, what do you do if you want to play recreational softball? Things like, like information that is really helpful for you to know as you're trying to settle and integrate into a community. Excellent. So that would really aid someone's transition. Um, but now here we here we are, you know, uh, five years later, and uh, we're looking at as as we've touched on uh, the the situation has has changed in the last several years, with particularly in the last couple of years uh, due to the pandemic. Um, so what is it you're hoping to really learn? I understand that that there is. Uh, a chance for both residents uh, and employers to weigh in when it comes to um, current challenges or issues they might be experiencing. Can you talk a bit more about what you're hoping to get out of that? So some of the things that we heard about, you know, five years ago are still current. Some of the things are new. So we've been hearing from employers and, and job seekers, um, mostly through our partners, that you know, things like remote work. How do you integrate remote work? What does that mean for your business? What does it mean for job seekers who are looking for jobs that are exclusively remote? Um, we've been hearing a lot more about mental health. Childcare is a really large, big topic nowadays. Uh, five, you know, I've worked in economic development prior to taking this role, and I don't think anybody ever discussed childcare. And now it comes up all the time, partially because people have left the workforce to take care of their children and would like to come back, but don't have the space. Um, and also because the workforce in childcare has changed as the number of people have exited it. So those are some of the issues we've been hearing about. And what we're hoping to hear from the community is more issues that they're experiencing, more things so that we can kind of figure out what the themes are. So, 
you know, if I'm talking to the people I know and they're all telling me the same thing, that's great, but I can't talk to everybody in person. So giving people the opportunity to really share what's been concerning to them and what they see as a big issue would be really helpful to us because at that, once we've sort of collected information, then we'll sit down and see if we can find themes. The whole sort of the whole purpose of this strategy from the get-go and now with the refresh is to figure out common pain points in the community that are facing job seekers and employers across sectors and then how we can work together to establish programs that can help address those pain points. I also see that there's an information session being held virtually coming up on Thursday, June 2nd. Uh, Any information what people can expect from this session? Um, So basically, we're going to chat with them about some of the information I'm sharing with you, and then also some of the information we're going to be gathering through the forum um, that's currently live on Get Involved Kingston. So if you go on there, um, you can see some of the responses we've received. We're going to do some more social media marketing around it to encourage people to respond. So I think it's going to be more about the strategy itself, some of the responses we received, and to also see if we can get um, more context from people. Excellent. Excellent. And definitely it always helps to hear directly from uh, employers or and, and also residents from the community as well to have both both sides of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a, you know, you're not going to have economic success as a community if employers can't hire. And it's hard for employers to hire if their job seekers aren't happy and thereby leaving the community. So I think our goal is always to make sure that we provide as much support as we can to both employers and job seekers so that we create a really great situation for people to find jobs that they're happy in and they stick around. And and you mentioned retention is so essential, right? Like, I mean, if you're only attracting but not retaining, that's a really expensive adventure to be on. Um, What you ideally want to do is bring people here and keep them here. And if people are happy in their job, they're much more likely to stick around the community. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think uh, we'll have to see what, what comes out of the uh, the forum and as well, what comes out from people providing input. Um, but but thank you again for taking some time to speak with me today uh, about what you're working on here, this uh, workforce development and in-migration strategy. Thank you. Thank you, Kareem. And you know, I would, if you have an opportunity during your show, I would really encourage the Queen's student community to get engaged. Um, that's the future of the workforce for us. And I would love to hear what they think and what they have to say and what we could do as a community to make them consider Kingston as a place to settle once they've graduated. So we'd love to hear from them. Well, that is, actually, that's a great point because, I mean, there, there are um, there are several, uh, you know, post-secondary institutions right here in Kingston. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, you know, it, it's the idea of, you, of, of maybe a lot of those either staying locally or perhaps do they have to move outside the city in order to find the work they're looking for? So I'm sure also that's another area that would be uh, something to look at, right? Absolutely. And you know, student engagement, especially in the workforce piece, is essential for us. And there were a couple of programs that the city has that are really interesting in sort of the workforce engagement piece. One is run by the Kingston Economic Development Corporation, and it's the Queen's Career Apprenticeship Program that connects students that are just new graduates out of the arts programs at Queens with employers and it covers four months of their salary of a one-year contract. So it really helps integrate new graduates into the workforce in jobs that they find interesting, that are you know engaging to them and sort of help them grow their career. And we're finding that when we're able to engage people in that way and really 
get them into jobs that they enjoy, they tend to, they tend to make a home here. And, you know, we have so many students coming to Kingston every year and to even retain a small percentage of that can make a huge difference in our workforce. So I want to hear from them. <laughs> if they're, if they want to tell me how they feel, I would love to hear it. Excellent. Absolutely. And, um, and, and where can people go to find all of this information? Is, is there a convenient place for people to find everything? Yeah, so the city has a uh, website called Get Involved Kingston, and they can go and check it out. Um, there is a special, there's a website for the uh, workforce refresh. If they're looking for information just on Kingston, if they want to check out our job board that we have that's regional or find out more about the community in general, possiblemadehere.org is the website that we run. Um, and that has a lot of really great information for people who are kind of new to Kingston, whether they're students or coming in as residents or whatnot, but I think it might help them sort of get to know the community a little bit better and maybe find find themselves wanting to stay here. You are listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and on podcast. I'm Kareem Mosna. The My Lime Project is a research initiative led by Queen's University faculty and students. It's a survey that aims to better understand and more accurately diagnose Lyme disease. Madeline Gravel is a Master's of Psychology student at Queen's and is one of the researchers with the project. She joined me to talk about the initiative and some key findings. From what I'm understanding here, many people who are bitten by a tick that is carrying Lyme disease, many of these individuals are often misdiagnosed. Uh, can you give me some examples of, of how someone might be misdiagnosed? Yeah, so um, a lot of people in the early stages of Lyme disease might develop different symptoms from other people. Um, and even the symptoms that they do develop can look like other diseases as well. Uh, we know that there's a lot of fatigue um, in early and late stages of Lyme, and that can look like things like chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, we have a lot of headaches, mood changes, things like that. People can often be misdiagnosed with mental health conditions like depression or anxiety and things like that. Um, we also have again, kind of like those neurocognitive symptoms like brain fog and things like that. So it, a lot of patients actually refer to Lyme as kind of like this great imitator because it can look like so many other things and it can go misdiagnosed for so long. And the tests that we use uh, specifically in Canada, um, the ways in which we implement them in our healthcare system currently um, prevent them from being super effective in um acknowledging that there might be a positive case here. Um, so often people can test negative, uh, even though they are carrying the, the bacteria that's responsible for Lyme disease. So a lot of people um, can go misdiagnosed here because you do require um, a positive serological or like blood test for Lyme disease in order to get diagnosed in Canada. Um, if your doctor is not willing to make just a clinical diagnosis, um, so a lot of people actually go down to the States or go out to Germany um, to get tested there and end up testing positive there and not here. And then it becomes very complicated for those people to get the healthcare that they need. Wow. So it's, there, there's so many uh, possibilities and it could be a case where someone um, might even test negative, but they might still be carrying it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. So this project, can you tell me a bit about your process and how you're 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 doing this research? Yeah, so we launch a survey every year. This is the third year that we're launching our annual survey. Um, it is a little bit different this year. Uh, we're specifically focusing on or um, increasing our focus on um, geographical differences and interpersonal or interpersonal differences in symptom presentation and looking at um, any kind of overlap between the two. So maybe people who are being bitten by ticks in Kingston develop different symptoms than people who are being bitten in Nova Scotia, for example. Um, and maybe there's a difference in the pathogens that the ticks carry there. Maybe the Borrelia bacteria that we know to be a causal um, factor in Lyme disease looks just like slightly different in different regions, and that leads to different symptom profiles potentially. Um, maybe there are other reasons, maybe Lyme disease is more recognized in some regions than others. So the healthcare that people get in that area is more effective at preventing chronic Lyme than other places. So we might see more acute symptoms more commonly in places like Kingston where Lyme is really recognized, um, versus maybe more chronic symptoms like, um, chronic fatigue or chronic headaches and things like that, chronic pain, um, in places where Lyme disease maybe isn't as recognized. So that's something that we're really interested in kind of developing an understanding of is how Lyme disease shows up and how does it show up differently um, in different regions of Canada and how can we use that information to better inform healthcare policy, better um, empower patients, empower practitioners to make more accurate diagnoses, more specific diagnoses um, when it comes to tick-borne disease and uh, also a specific interest of mine being in clinical psychology, um, I'm really interested in mental health outcomes for people with Lyme disease with um, kind of just like misunderstood contested illnesses overall. Um, so I'm really interested in hearing about people's healthcare experiences and how those things have kind of informed um, poor mental health outcomes like depression. So this is all really linked in the sense that as you're bringing up here, even Lyme disease uh, has significant impacts on one's mental health as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it makes sense, right? Like if, if you're going into the healthcare system with these symptoms and maybe you're testing negative, but you were bitten by a tick and and you got all these symptoms afterwards and it doesn't really make sense that the tests are negative when all the symptoms line up with like how we understand Lyme disease to show up. Um, and there's a lot of stigma within the medical community as well as to what exactly chronic Lyme disease looks like. Um, so you could be facing that stigma in the healthcare community. It could be really hard to get disability at work if you're not able to get a diagnosis, right, which can further impact your mental health. So there's just all these various factors that go into what it means to live with that uncertainty and how you cope with that. And yeah. So the primary outcome is, is to be able to deliver this data, this information to healthcare professionals. What is the ultimate hope beyond that? Yeah, I mean, that's a really big focus for us is informing healthcare policy, um, really amping up our knowledge translation so that we can, um, again, help empower patients, help empower practitioners to make those informed decisions about um, what tick-borne disease looks like in their area. Um, a specific, a spe again, specific interest for me is really improving uh, mental health support for people living with uncertain or misunderstood um, illnesses. Um, 
we don't see a lot of incorporation of mental health care into our broader approach to tick-borne disease. Um, and I think that's really important when we um, come to factor in all of these um, stigma factors and lack of social support and things like that. It's really important for the early disease management um, stages to not only address um, acute intervention with like antibiotics and things like that, but also to say like, hey, how are you coping with this? Like, how are things going for you? I think that's a really important step for um, patients to feel heard and to feel seen in their, in their illness. And you're also looking for people who have lived experience with Lyme disease to uh, go to my Lyme, my L-Y-M-E dot C-A uh, to take part in this survey. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the questions that you'll be asking people in this survey. Yeah, so we've got um, a kind of big survey. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to complete. Uh, we're asking about people's symptoms at various stages in the illness because we want to understand um, not only what symptoms are showing up, but how they're showing up over time. So um, what symptoms you're experiencing when you first noticed that you were bitten, how you felt when you were receiving treatment, how you're feeling after treatment now. Um, we've gotten a lot of feedback from our patient partners that um, that's really valuable information for them because maybe they experienced fatigue in the early stages, but that's not really something that they experienced three years out, right? So we want to be able to have that really specific information about symptom presentation. Uh, we're asking questions about their treatment experiences and general experiences within the healthcare system here in Canada, um, as well as the states. We have questions about mental health outcomes, um, beliefs about healthcare and disease and yourself. Um, so yeah, just a, a big wide range we're asking about sleep outcomes. We've got some daily diary measures uh, so that we can get super specific about symptom presentation over time. Um, so yeah, we're really excited about this survey and, and the potential implications of, of the data. Excellent. And uh, so how, how long is this survey running until? Uh, we're ongoing recruitment um, for the foreseeable future. So Whenever people have time, we'd be more than happy to have people check it out. This is CFRC 101.9 FM. You're listening to Citizen K. I'm Kareem Mosna. As promised, I got to ask all the candidates for Kingston and the Islands one question. Multiple issues were, of course, addressed in today's debate. But if you could pick just one issue that affects this riding that you would really like to tackle right away, what would that be? I think the importance of electing a member of provincial parliament who will have a voice in government, because if you haven't got a voice in government, you can't be an effective representative. So I think in many respects, I, th I think the voters of Kingston and the Islands need to think hard about, about who they want representing them and whether or not they want someone who, who has strong municipal experience, which I have, or whether they want someone who, who lacks a local municipal experience. So in my case, I think it's a question of picking the most effective leader who can best represent our community. The key issue is shortages, shortages of housing and family doctors. 
that would be the key thing to tackle. With regards to, to well, I guess you elaborated on the debate, but maybe a quick point in terms of what you'd like to address right away within within those issues. For housing, it's one simple thing here in Kingston is that there's provincial crown land on King Street, uh, opposite from St. Lawrence College. Uh, that can be freed up. It's already zoned. It's already zoned for 25% affordable housing. That could be freed up. Affordable housing. <laughs> I mean, there's just no denying it that it's a challenge and it, and it touches everyone regardless of whether they're a student and they're trying to uh, to do some training so that they can continue on in their careers or whether it's uh, someone who a young family who's who's struggling to pay the bills struggling to pay childcare costs and uh, looking to buy their first home for those who have been experiencing deep poverty uh, and have been living in very difficult conditions over the last number of years. I mean, we've always had that type of poverty, but we see more of it through the pandemic. So yeah, I think our plan on affordable housing would be what I would emphasize as the one priority for Kingston. Well, the climate crisis, there is no future if we don't deal with the climate crisis. As the only Gen Z candidate, it's my future on the line. And my candidacy is about not just my generation, but the next seven. The provincial election is this Thursday, June 2nd. And that's all for Citizen K this week. Citizen K was produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Queen's University. CFRC 101.9 FM broadcasts from Kingston, Ontario on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Thank you for listening. I'm Kareem Mosna.